This is Car Expert. And I think GWM deserves a pat on the back if it does bring the car to Australia for committing to something a little bit different. Toyota's recognising that they're starting to lose their stranglehold on the market now. Joy of joys. <laughs> the Outback Turbo is here and it gives this car the power it always deserved. James Wong, hello to you. Hello, Mandy. And hello, William Stockford. Hey, Mandy. Now, this is um, pretty interesting news this week. Volkswagen Golf has lost the European sales crown after 17 years to what car, Will? To the Peugeot 208. Yeah, this, uh, which, is this a surprise? I feel like this is a bit of a surprise. Uh, I think it, it is and it isn't. I mean, there's no secret that Peugeot does very well in Europe um, and the 208 is very popular. It's, it's consistently a, a top 10 player there. It's also no surprise that Volkswagen has introduced vehicles over the past several years that have eaten into Golf's market share. So you've got the ID3 in the electric space. You've got the Golf-based T-Rock crossover, which is, again, a, a top 10 player over in Europe. Um, but uh, to lose the sales crown after 17 years, we, we do also know that Volkswagen has had a lot of supply issues, particularly with its German factories and, and chips and whatnot. But this is still a, uh, a, a, bit of a bit of a tough pill to swallow for Volkswagen. <laughs> what are your thoughts, Jay? Well, as a, a fellow golf owner... <laughs> yeah, um, I, I did find it interesting that it, it finally happened. Um, I'm also not really that surprised. Like Will said, the, the 208 has been a huge, like all of Peugeot's range for that matter, are huge sellers over in Europe. Like you look at France alone, all of their top 10 are local products. And then on a more um, widespread level across Europe, the 2008, the 208 and the 308 have historically been very, very strong sellers there. And um, from what I heard from the Peugeot, the local Peugeot team when I spoke to them at the 308 launch late last year, um, one of the reasons why it's been so hard for them to get some of their new electric products, for example, the E208, is because that car has been so successful in Europe. And perhaps that has actually contributed to this this um, shift in, in the sales uh environment over there is that you know the 208 offers an electric option and in the in a time where fuel prices are rising and all of that sort of stuff it, it makes sense that in europe people are starting to gravitate towards vehicles that are either fully electric or are, are more efficient and in terms of something like a, a 208 you've got the choice of petrol diesel and electric powertrains so um you know a smaller car that's quite efficient and, and it's, it's actually quite a stark contrast to here when you think about it when you know i could not tell you the last time a light segment hatchback was the top selling vehicle in Australia because people just don't buy, really buy them here. And especially now when they're in such small numbers, it's, 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 it's really, it's a complete world away from what we're seeing here where, you know, diesel, non-electrified dual cab utes dominate our market share as well as, you know, a, a group of SUVs where only one main player is showing a majority electrified sales. So, you know, it, I've been... I'm somebody that, while I'm not a complete francophile like some, um, I really enjoy uh, a lot of the French brands and their their, their products. Um, Peugeot, in particular, is basically a French Volkswagen. When you see how they're positioned overseas, and their their latest range of products are really really strong. And when I had a brief stint in France, actually doing that Mercedes launch last year, when I tell you all I saw on the road there were Peugeots, 
Renaults and even DSs, which, you oh, know, wow, here cool. you would never see that kind of stuff. No. Like see a DS4 or a DS5 in Australia, they were here for a number of years and they sold like five. Mm. Um, to see them so commonly was just incredible because they're cool cars and they're cute and they have cool colors and they look great. So, you know, props to Peugeot. Hopefully, I, I know we've that Peugeot Australia has not been very clear on if and when we're going to see the E2808 here, but it's a car that's been promised, sort of promised to us for a really long time. And I really want to see that car here. So hopefully, fingers crossed, we get to see Europe's top selling car line somehow in Australia. <laughs> I want to say the last time a light car uh, was number one on the sales charts in Australia. And, and somebody, please <laughs> let me know if I'm wrong was maybe the Hyundai Excel in 1997. Like, oh, <laughs> I feel like, nice. like as in like the number one spot. So uh, that's interesting. I thought it would also be a good idea just to to go through uh, briefly what the top 10 best-selling cars in Europe were uh, last year. Because here it's just like you, you mid-size SUV, mid-size SUV, you, you like it's, it's, it's very different in Europe. Uh, number 10 was the Renault Clio. Then the Dacia Duster at number nine. Uh, the Hyundai Tucson, number eight. Opel slash Vauxhall Course at number seven. The Toyota Yaris at number six. Volkswagen Golf at number five. The Fiat 500, including the uh, Arbath models, was uh, at number four. The Volkswagen T-Roc was at number three. So the T-Roc did beat the Golf. Um, the Dacia Sundero was at number two. And the Peugeot 208 was at number one. Uh, notable was the fact that there were, none of those vehicles are exclusively EV. So there were no Teslas that ended up in, in the top 10. We know that Tesla has been selling up a storm in Europe, but not quite good enough to get into the uh, into the top 10. Um and in terms of the best-selling brands in Europe, this one actually surprised me a little bit because we know how dominant it is here, um, but it's not typically as, the, I guess, all Japanese brands aren't typically as, as big in Japan. Uh, the Vol Volkswagen brand was still number one, um, even though sales fell. Uh, but second place was actually Toyota. Uh, so Toyota, despite not really having much in the way of electric offerings. The BZ4X has only just gone on sale over there. Uh, they were still good enough to, to get up into the number two spot. And I think that was probably largely on the back of their hybrid models. We should do this more often. Maybe just once a year, go through like even the US sales charts as well. It's so interesting. There is an Instagram account that I follow, and I'm completely forgetting the name. But James, I think you follow it as well. And he the car industry analysis, analysis, yeah, yeah. So he basically gets the sales data, and he um, creates like charts out of it. Um, some of his segmentation is a little bit interesting sometimes, but uh, they're really, really good graphics, and they're very shareable. And he does it for like it'll be like the ten best selling cars in Morocco last year, and oh. it's it's just wild. So uh, if you if you guys are prolific Instagrammers like James and I are, I uh, highly recommend uh, going to that account. It's so cool. Um, can we just backtrack a sec? Will that the second car on that list? What is it again? Uh, the Dacia Sandero. Um, so for well, explain to the folks at home who Dacia is. <laughs> Basically, uh, Dacia is uh, a, a Renault-owned brand. Um, they specialize in, you know, budget fare. Uh, so there's the Duster, there's the Sandero, there's I think the Logie and Logan are gone now. But basically, they're, they're not uh, 
the most modern in terms of safety technology or infotainment or whatever, but they're very, very keenly priced and they have been doing well, really well in terms of market share and sales across Europe and also apparently in profitability as well. So, it can be profitable to make affordable cars if you're using, you know, last generation platforms and whatnot. Yeah, I would probably equate Dacia to something like a, a an Eastern European version of Suzuki or MG in terms of like where they're positioned in the market and they do like really cheap and cheerful cars. Um, the Sandero is actually a favorite of James May. So that's high praise given <laughs> how famous and, and well regarded James May is. But yeah, so they, they, it's a really cool brand that they've actually promised to eventually launch here. They do the Duster, which is sort of like their version or competitor to something like a Suzuki Jimny that it's like a rugged budget off-roader. Um, they've been saying that the Renault and um, their, their distributor, Ateco, have been talking about um, bringing the Dacia products in for a while now. I think they're just still in the process of finalizing what their range looks like. So it would be cool to have something like that on our roads because, yeah, if you can, they do mild hybrids and stuff now too. So they're starting to move into electrification. Um, they draw upon a lot of um, Renault and Nissan Alliance parts, um, but obviously they're not quite as... Um, premium or refined so i don't know i feel like given mg success who, who's to say that a dacia product wouldn't do well here absolutely i like to think the same too now just before we do jump into news jwell you've just come back from the nissan x-trail e-power launch how was it yeah, it was good. I'm surprised you haven't commented on my tan since I was in Brisbane for the week. But um, you could have tan twenty four seven though. That, that, that's true. Um, I did. Um, I did head up to Brisbane. So started off in the Sunshine Coast and then drove down to Brisbane and, and tacked on a couple of days and worked out of our Brisbane office. So Will and I sort of swapped places, even though he's still in Victoria. I'm trying to wait waiting for him to leave but um <laughs> it just gave me a very stern glare um but we drove the new um x-trail e-power with e-force hybrid which is um basically nissan's competitor to the rev4 hybrid but they take a slightly different concept um i can't really tell you what i think about it driving impressions wise just yet the embargo is later this week but i look forward to um sharing my written thoughts um later this week with everybody and also i'll jump on the podcast and give everyone the rundown next week so yes exciting times and i'm just glad that there's more choice um for australian buyers well, we don't have Jack Quick to talk about this week's car news. Instead, we've got a new member of the Car Expert team and a first on the Car Expert podcast, Jade Credentino. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Mandy. It's a pleasure to be here. So we'd love to know a little bit more about you, Jade. Um, how much do you love cars? So I think I was probably like four or five and that was kind of when I started I guess, getting into cars with dad and just on the weekend, um, you know, fixing the oil and just checking everything with the cars. And then I guess it just kind of grew from there. Nice. So you actually know the, the basics of um, changing tyres and all that sort of stuff, which is quite a rarity these days. Um, do you have a car now yourself? Yes, I do. I drive a i30. Awesome. And do you have a name for it? I don't. What? That's really, I know. You might be the like only person day. currently on this podcast who hasn't named their car. Yes. So that's on the to-do list. <laughs> um, and what's your dream car? Oh, it's really hard because I love an SUV. I'm, I'm big on space. But I feel like it's just it's not very exciting. It's just. It, you can't get exciting SUVs, though. Yeah, look, I think. If I had to choose one, 
based on what ticks all my boxes. I think the Skoda Octavia RS wagon isn't an SUV, but I think that's probably my favourite. Close enough. Okay. I, I think we definitely picked the right person to be with car expert, Will and Joe. <laughs> <laughs> we are a lover of all things wagons. Um, fantastic. Well, well, welcome to the team, Jade, and we uh, we look forward to having you um, on the podcast a little bit more often. Um, so we're going to talk about uh, this week's biggest car news, and we'll start off with this one. It seems like Toyota are a little bit scared of losing their top position with the Hilux. Yeah, so this article recently got published by Matt Campbell um, and Toyota has come out and said that they're facing a big challenge this year and they certainly respect their competitors, but it's definitely going to be a challenging market in 2023. So just some Jan VFAX figures for the Hilux. It only sold 4,131 units and the Ranger topped it this last month with 4,749 units. So I think this year it's going to be pretty tight between the Hilux and the Ranger. Now Toyota does also have the GR Sport Hilux that is expected in Q3 of 2023, while the Ranger also has the Platinum that is joining the lineup this year as well. So it'll be really interesting to see out of the two, which one does top at the end of the year? Also, it's probably helped along by um, Ford having the new, new generation Ranger as well, which has yeah. really helped their sales. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sure. um, guys, what do you uh, what do you think of this? Um, as, as Toyota, does Toyota have every right to be um, a little bit scared? Well, it was, I think, what Hilux has been in the number one spot now for like seven years or, or something like that. Um, but it is one of the older vehicles in the segment now. You've got a brand new generation of Ranger that offers a V6 turbo diesel, which is not very common in the segment. Um, I'm not really all that surprised that uh, the Ranger outsold the Hilux in January, and I wouldn't be surprised if provided forward supply situation is fine, um, that it ends up beating the Hilux this year. Mm-hmm. What about you, Jabo? Yeah, I think it's a, an interesting thing, and it's um, for Toyota to actually come out and say that they're, you know, they understand or they they can see it happening. Um, sort of points to them. I feel like they're very good at saying things with a straight face, but when they actually have to announce something like that, it means they're sort of quaking in their boots a little bit. So for them to say like, oh, but we've got all these things coming, I think um, Toyota's recognizing that they're starting to lose their stranglehold on the market now. And as we saw last year, there was a very big boost in Ranger sales once the new generation came online. And I think Toyota was fortunate that there was a few months where um, over the generational changeover for Ranger that they didn't, um, they were able to lengthen their lead for a little while and, and kept that right until the end of the year but when you have you know new Amarok launching this year which is basically Ranger 2.0 um, that looks a bit nicer and more luxurious you're potentially losing volume there uh, you've got um, a very competitive very good competitors in the Isuzu D-Max and Mazda BT50 which have experienced some supply issues of late but will likely start changing that and you're getting all these um, newer utes that have so much more tech uh, more up-to-date designs and you know the, the Hilux is a tried and tested product people buy it because they know it's 
it's just going to drive forever and it's you know Toyota has a great reputation for reliability and an unbeatable dealer network in Australia so that's always going to be a key selling point for them but with so many uh, people now buying these utes not for necessarily tradey purposes and they're more lifestyle vehicles you can actually see how the buyer is probably tempted to look outside the, the usual portfolio of competitors that um, we've come accustomed to over the last few years. So it'll be a very interesting year for dual cab ute sales, I'm sure. Mm. Well, we're going to talk about a, a brand new ute model that's coming to Australia in just a couple of new stories time. Um, look, I'm a lover of small cars and it's very sad to see that uh, the Kia Rio has been axed in Australia, Jade. Yeah, so after almost 20 years, the Kia Rio is going to be axed with the seventh generation being confirmed, not going to be produced in a right-hand drive, according to Kia. So this year, sorry, last year, the MG3 and Suzuki Bellino, as well as the Mazda 2, did beat the Kia Rio in sales, um, falling behind in the segment. So it's going to be interesting. Uh, Kia will continue the Picanto and the Serato, um, and the Sonic will obviously be a crossover um, filling in the gap. But I want to know, do you guys think that Kia will now have a gap in their lineup with the rear leaving, or do you think it will leave a nice place for the Sonic to slide in? Uh, yeah, well, I, I had a lot of... Um lot to think about when I wrote this story because, you know, the, the Rio has been such a significant player in the Kia lineup for some time. And, you know, when the brand launched it in the mid 2000s, it was sort of seen as like a cheap and, well, cheap and not so cheerful, <laughs> depending on who you ask. But, um, you know, it was a, a key driver for Kia's sales um, back then. And then once the, I think it was the UB generation in like 2012, that really European designed one that um, was penned by none other than Peter Shrey himself. Like it was probably the one that kickstarted the brand's renaissance. And I think that, um, you know, a lot of, even now Kia credits and a lot of customers credit that that generation of Rio for really boosting the brand's image and kickstarting the the design change that led to what um, we see now. And, um, you know, I, th I know that we in Australia, we like high spec cars, we like SUVs and all of that nonsense. Um, but there's still a place and a case for, you know, affordable small cars that for, you know, P-platers, learners, um, sometimes even you know, our grandparents or, you know, older generation or more distinguished members of the public that perhaps just want something that's small and reliable and, you know, is easy to park in the city. And it'll be really sad to see this car leave the Australian lineup because uh, from what we've been told, there is a new generation coming at some point and I assume it's going to be later this year. But like the um, Hyundai Accent, it'll only be um, revealed in left-hand drive and likely focused on developing markets. So, yeah, I think that the step from Picanto to Serato is fairly big at this point. I think a high spec Picanto is like just over 20 grand drive away, whereas a, an entry level Serato is nudging 30. So there's a big gap there now um, that they'll, they, that Kia says will just be filled by the Stonic, which is essentially a Rio on stilts anyway. But it, it is always a shame. And I feel like, especially in the most recent generation, um, Kia didn't quite give the Rio the shot that it needed. There was so much um, technology and features available in other markets, such as Korea and Europe, that we never saw here. And I feel like given the, the state of the market, 
market. You know, you've got the Polo and the Yaris and the Mazda 2 all pushing up in price, but including as much safety and powertrain tech as they can. I just feel like it was a missed opportunity. And given that car last year on one of its worst years was contributing about four and a half thousand units. That's a lot of volume to to lose in, in today's supply constrained market. Watch the MG3 just clean up. And I think it really does show that a lot of people at this end of the market, they don't necessarily care about having the most up-to-date safety features, but manufacturers feel you know, obligated to bring cars here with a certain level of specification. Um, but of course, this isn't a particularly profitable segment because it is a particularly price conscious segment. So what you end up with is the MG3, which is over 10 years old, which doesn't have autonomous emergency braking, let alone any other kind of active safety technology. And it is outselling everything considerably. And we're watching rival after rival just leave the segment. Um, and, you know, I'm sure a new MG3 will come along um eventually maybe um but if mg can keep the the price down of that model they can continue this effective stranglehold on the segment i'm not all that surprised that the kia rio is going um purely because when the stonic was introduced in australia i drove it and i'm like wow inside it looks exactly like a Rio. It has the exact same powertrain lineup as the Rio. There's any very minor spec differences. It doesn't feel particularly more spacious. Maybe it's, it's a little bit higher. And of course, the exterior styling is different. But they were able to charge a premium over the Rio. And if you have two vehicles in your product lineup that are virtually the same, but one you can charge more money for, as a manufacturer, what are you going to do? You're going to steer people over to the Sonic. Um, and... The fact that, you know, the Rio, they confirmed in the UK that it was being discontinued, um, that leaves, you know, a shrinking number of, of right-hand drive markets. So, you know, no no right-hand drive model engineered for the next generation. And as, as James said, it's exactly what happened with the Hyundai Accent as well. And we're going to continue to see, you, you go over and look at markets like... Um, like Mexico and India and China, and there are still plenty of vehicles in this segment, um, but it's just a dwindling number here. Let's talk about the pricing for the GWM Aura, Jade. Yeah, so the Aura is GWM's first electric hashback that's coming in. Now, pricing and specs have been released and it is expected in the Australian market later this year. Um, so it will sit size-wise between the Polo and the Golf and it will carry two battery options. So you have got um, the 310 kilometer or the long range 420 kilometer. The range does open up with the 310 kilometer um, battery at 43,990 before on-road costs. Then you have got the Aura extended range at 47,990 and then the extended range GT at 53,990 excluding on-road costs. Now, I want to know, do you guys think the Aura would do well in Australia and have GWM done a good job at, I guess, diversifying their lineup? I think that uh, any small EV at this stage that can come in under that $50,000 number is going to do well. And I'm surprised that perhaps it's not a little bit cheaper, but from Scott's own reporting, um, it seems like it'll be a competitive product and I'm keen to see how it travels in the Australian market. Um, the range for the for the segments and the price point seems all right. Uh, it looks cool. Um, it's 
is it called the good cat overseas? It's something like that. It, it's got some funny names. So it looks funky. It's got like a bit of Fiat 500 and Mini Cooper about it. It's, um, you know, it seems well-sized. The interior colorway is interesting to say the least. And, you know, as we've seen with GWM's other products, um, you know, it's got good display tech and all the um, assistance features that you'd expect of a vehicle of uh, that price point and, and this year to it's got it all. So I imagine they'll sell pretty much everyone they can get given the state of the market at the moment. I can't wait um, to put one of these up against the new MG4. We've already seen a couple of comparison tests coming out of the UK between these two models um, and very, very, very different styling between the two of them and apparently, you know, quite different to drive as well. Um, it's certainly an interesting looking thing the interior looks cool i like the interior and uh finally our last story we'll just stick with more gwm news uh the hybrid is coming to australia this year jade yeah so gwm has announced the shanghai canon which will come to australia in the fourth quarter of this year now it could be at this stage toyota and ford to having the first hybrid ute in australia it'll be offered in two variants you have got a turbo diesel and a hybrid powertrain um, the turbo diesel will be a 2.4 liter four cylinder um, unit and it has 135 kilowatts of power and 480 newton meters of torque which is paired with a mild hybrid 48 volt system and the hybrid will have a two liter turbo petrol four cylinder engine with an electric motor um, is expected to share the same setup as the tank 300 hybrid um, which has 258 kilowatts of power and 615 newton meters of torque now, it will come in a nine-speed auto with an on-demand four-wheel drive system. Now, I want to know what are your thoughts on GWM beating Toyota and Ford to the market, bringing a hybrid ute to Australia? I mean, good on them. <laughs> Toyota has had plenty of time uh, to introduce a hybrid Hilux, seeing as they are a hybrid market leader. Um, I think what's also interesting about this is we know that this particular vehicle um, is available with a uh, V6 petrol engine uh, over in China, um, but that doesn't seem to have been confirmed for Australia. Uh, I think that... I mean, the Ute segment tends to be a bit of a conservative one. Um, there's, there's not necessarily a lot of evolution when it comes with Utes. You know, you still see a lot of drum brakes and, and live axles and whatnot because it's it's a focus on, you know, can the machine do the job that needs to be done rather than, you know, how pretty is it and, you know, what high-tech features does it have? Um But I think that there may be some demand for um, a hybrid Ute. Uh, I think we'll be really curious to see as well uh, what kind of towing capacity we're looking at here, what kind of payload figures, because uh, if it can't do the job. Um, but we also do know that the Shanghai Cannon is pitched more as more of as more of a lifestyle kind of Ute, uh, more of a premium kind of offering than the regular GWM Ute. So we'll also have to see what the pricing will look like. Mm, indeed. Well, that wraps up this week's news. If you'd like to know more, you can head to uh, the Car Expert website. Jade, it's been a pleasure having you on, and no, no doubt we'll chat soon. Thank you. Thanks, Mindy. GWM are producing some pretty impressive vehicles at the moment, and the latest could be coming to Australia, but nothing is, is uh, set in stone yet. It's the GWM Aura Sport, and the guy who's driven it is Scott Colley. Welcome. 
Hello, Mandy. Probably the most wackiest looking production car I've ever seen in a long time. Um, would you tend to agree? <laughs> I absolutely would. Um, this thing also is even wackier overseas because it's called the Lightning Cat, which is a great name for a car. In Australia, it's going to be called the Aura Sport. And, yeah, it looks like a – James and I were talking about this yesterday – like a Bugatti concept from the mid-2000s on the outside. And then inside, it's got everything from like Porsche Carrera GT to Bugatti to some, you know, more normal stuff as well, um, all going on behind the wheel. So – it's a really interesting looking car and it turns out that, look, it's not confirmed for Australia yet, but it's very likely. So you could be seeing these on the roads locally very soon. Are there any hints that could suggest it it could be coming here if we picked up on anything they've said? Yeah, look, GWM has said that it's strongly considering the car, which is the, the best indication we've got. But also it's actually gone to the effort of rebranding the thing from its lightning cat name to a local name. Um, which obviously you don't do unless you believe there is a very strong chance it will get to Australia. Um, and also just the way that GWM has previously talked about cars, when it says that it's really strongly evaluating something, it's it's likely to make it to Australia. It, it tends to. So we, we have a pretty good sense that this will come to Australia, just a matter of someone head office ticking the box basically. Mm. I love um, that you said uh, they went to the effort of, of giving it a name when they've given it the laziest name possible. And it's so – it's just confusing, right? Because, you know, you've got the GWM Aura, and Aura is actually considered a brand in China. Um, but here it's being treated as, as, as like a model name. And that's available in a GT. So if they do bring this here, they're going to have a GWM Aura Sport and a GWM Aura GT – that are completely different in the same showroom. Yeah, it's a little bit confusing. I think GWM is working on its branding at the moment. It said that it now wants, rather than all the sub-brands going on, to actually have everything under the GWM banner and then Aura is the essentially the, the model line for its electric vehicles and Havel is the model line for its SUVs. So expect to see some more clarity on that in Australia going forward. But, yeah, it is a little bit confusing, especially when you consider that Although the top-end version of this car does have quite a lot of punch, the entry-level one weighs 2.2 tonnes and has pretty middling outputs. Um, it's not that sporty and it's not that sporty to drive. Mm. We did touch on uh, pricing and specs in the news with Jay just before, Scully, but um, with the Aura Sport, what pricing could we expect this to be? So it's likely to be more expensive than the Aura you guys have already talked about and that tops out at about 55, 56 grand drive away. Um, look, Aura is talking, sorry, GWM, now I'm confused, is <laughs> talking about this as a sort of performance bargain relative to a Tesla Model 3 or a Polestar 2. And those ranges start in the mid $60,000 and run up to the ninety dollars or $100,000 ranges, depending on how you option them. The top spec version of the Aura Sport has similar outputs to a Tesla Model 3 performance. It's got 300 kilowatts and uh, a lot of torque. I've forgotten the exact number, <laughs> 680 newton metres. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me if pricing for this starts in the low $60,000 range and extends to maybe the mid or high $60,000 range, which when you consider it's putting it in line with entry-level, long-range but lower-performance versions of the Model 3 and the Polestar 2 could represent really good value. Okay. So um, what's all the, 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 the details on the power and the performance and, and how does it drive? So two different models are offered overseas, and if it can get it to Australia, GWM intends to offer those two models here. The entry-level car has a 63-kilowatt-hour battery pack and a front-mounted motor making 150 kilowatts of power and 340 newton-metres of torque. 
Uh, claim range is 555Ks, but that is on the NEDC test cycle, which is typically more relaxed than the WLTP cycle. So expect that number to drop if it gets reassessed using the more modern criteria. The range shopping car has an 85 kilowatt hour battery pack and all wheel drive. It's got the same motor on both axles. So you just double the outputs. It's got 300 kilowatts and 680 Newton meters and a claimed range of 700 kilometers, 705 kilometers, excuse me, on the NEDC drive cycle. Flat out, it'll do the zero to 100 sprint in 4.3 seconds, which is not quite Tesla Model 3 performance fast, but I have no doubt you'll agree, is fast. Mm -hmm. That is a fast car in a straight line. When you actually drive it, and we only drove an overseas spec front wheel drive car, and it was in a shade of sort of rose gold pink. uh, That'll make anyone who had an iPhone 8 in that color feel nostalgic. Um, Nothing about it really screamed sporty from the way it looked. And to drive, it was nice and comfortable and quiet, but it didn't blow me away with its sportiness. It's got that same sort of low down punch you expect of an electric car off the mark, and it's really smooth the way it accelerates. It's um, it's really funny inside. The car that we drove, all the infotainment was in Chinese. I have no idea how you would go about changing this in an English sort of setup car, but it made a really funny fake engine noise. Um, it almost reminded me of my BRZ, the way that it sounded. <laughs> and that was all played through the speakers, obviously. This thing's a single speed that makes no noise when you put your foot down. So um, GWM has gone to some effort to make it feel sporty inside with like a fake noise played over the speakers. I'm hoping when an English car does arrive in Australia, we can have a fiddle around and maybe there's some different options. Maybe you can go from BRZ four-cylinder to Ferrari V12 or something like that. But it does show that GWM is making some effort to to give enthusiasts and people who maybe don't want a silent car some alternatives to just humming around with sort of an alien sound going on. Um, The steering in it is quite light. Um, it really feels quite quick at the front end and, you know, like it's set up for the city basically and there's quite a bit of body roll. So it feels like a really comfortable Grand Tourer. Um, doesn't feel like a sports car based on our drive initially, but when we get some time behind the wheel of the dual motor, maybe that'll change. I can see how uh, the GWM Aura, I'm a funky cat as I prefer to call it, um, how that would kind of have appeal to certain buyers because it's got the kind of cutesy styling and it's a little bit more affordable. But this model will presumably, when it comes here, be more expensive and be going up against established rivals like the Tesla Model 3 and, you know, and also vehicles like the Polestar 2. Now, with this kind of unusual styling inside and out do you think that people will actually seriously consider it as a as a rival to those vehicles Uh, i i don't know to be honest um I, i don't have a good answer for you and gwm doesn't have a good answer for you either i mean realistically they know that this car is a bit quirky relative to the rest of what's on the market and it's it's not saying that this car is going to sell in the numbers that a model three is if it does come to australia What I do think is worth considering, though, is two things. The first is we're constantly complaining about the fact that cars look the same, feel the same. They're they're not diverse enough in 2023. So whether or not people are going to love it because it's different is kind of not for me to decide. But what I can say is I really love the fact that if it does come to Australia, it's different. It looks different on the outside to anything else on the road. The interior is very unique, and I think we need more of that. And I think GWM deserves a pat on the back if it does bring the car to Australia for committing to something a little bit different to what the rest of the market offers and trusting that either people will buy it or it can get away with selling it in lower volumes. I think the other thing is 
some EV buyers have shown a determination to stick out. I mean, there was a period there where buying a Tesla was that, but that doesn't really count anymore because they sold 10,000 Model 3s last year, something like that. Um, the Polestar 2 is getting more common. The EQA, Merc, and the BMW stuff, they're all derivatives of internal combustion cars. I'm not saying there's thousands of them out there necessarily, but there are plenty of people who all of a sudden maybe want something that stands out a little bit to show that they've bought an electric car and stuff that previously represented that doesn't anymore. And, and there's an opportunity there for GWM to go, okay, well, maybe you're a little bit quirky, but we're going to offer you something that Tesla doesn't going forward. So there's an opportunity there. Whether it'll be a volume seller, I have no idea, but I like the fact that if it does come to Australia, it's a bit weird. Um, so, Scott, you've obviously spent a little bit of time in it and, and maybe not enough driving it to determine how good it is all around. But in terms of the vehicle that you were presented with, how did the interior quality, practicality all feel like um, in comparison to what's already available on the market? Yeah, interesting question. Um, this car on the outside is actually quite similar dimensionally to a Hyundai Ioniq 6. So it's not a small car, but inside it does feel a little bit tight. Um, I found the driving position wasn't that flash for me. I know I'm weirdly tall, but the Aura, the, the smaller, cheaper hatchback, actually had a really good driving position and the Sport doesn't. So that I found quite interesting. The other thing that you'll notice is, although it looks quite cool with the sloping roof, that eats into rear headroom and also means the boot has quite a small opening. It's not a hatchback. It's a, it's a sedan with a pop-out sort of trunk. Um, which means that, yeah, if you're trying to load big items in there, you're going to struggle relative to a Polestar 2 with its hatchback or even a Model 3, which has a wider opening. Um, in terms of the tech and the quality inside, it looks quite cool. Um, I really think it, it feels well put together. The seats are quite lovely. Um, all the leather feels quite nice, whether it's real or not. And, you know, the little toggle switches on the dash and the dials and that sort of thing, Although they're not, you know, high-end Audi quality, they do feel good enough given the price where we expect this thing to fall. So as we've experienced with the Aura and also some other GWM stuff, it's not exactly the last word in interior quality relative to some more established brands, but given what you're paying and the amount of equipment you get, I think it's quite reasonable. Hmm. Is there any um, anything that you think GWM could improve on for the Australian market? Yeah, look, I think if they're going to brand it as the sport, they're going to need to tighten up the suspension a little bit. Um, again, I realise our drive was very limited on roads at the Australian Automotive Research Centre in Anglesey. So maybe on the, on the public road, it'll feel a little different. But I do think that Australians really love sports cars. I mean, you look at M, Volkswagen R, Mercedes AMG, um, all of those are what we skew towards when, when it comes to new car sales in those brands. And if GWM is going to market this as a sport, there will be an expectation, I think, from buyers that it will feel sporty. And being fast doesn't mean sporty. It just means powerful. So I do think that, you know, maybe an international tune for the suspension that just tightens things up a little bit relative to the car we drove wouldn't go astray and would probably help GWM get away with that sport moniker in a way that maybe the car can't at the moment. Yeah. All right. Well, we look forward to um, an at-home review and uh, we'll get a Car Expert rating uh, once we, we do get some more time behind the wheel. But that review is live at Car Expert now. Thank you, Scott Colley. Thanks, guys. For our second review for this week's podcast, Will, did I read right the Subaru Outback now has a turbo engine in Australia? You did read right. So Hallelujah. 
<laughs> yes, there are some cars that we just we report on, we ask PR people about for ages, um, and there never seems to be any movement on them coming to Australia. I think the, the Mazda 3 Turbo is, is one example of that. Mm. And so I'd, I'd almost resign myself to uh, the Subaru Outback Turbo not coming here. It's been available since this generation was introduced in, uh, in the US uh, back in late 2020. Um, but when the Outback came here uh, the following year, um, our models come from Japan, whereas US models come from the US. Um, and it was launched here with just a single naturally aspirated engine. So we knew that Subaru had been moving away from diesel, so there was no diesel this generation. And the uh, six-cylinder of the previous car had also uh, been discontinued. Uh, so that left Subaru without an, an engine option. They just had a, a single engine um, across three trim levels. Well, now... Joy of joys, <laughs> the Outback Turbo is here and it gives this car the power it, it always deserved. Awesome. Um, now, we went to uh, a launch event in, in New South Wales and I'm really glad that they actually had the naturally aspirated Outback on hand as well just so I could reacquaint myself with that. Um, I get behind the wheel of it, I'm driving out from Subaru's headquarters and I'm like, oh, yeah. This isn't too bad. I mean, I'm, I'm somebody I used to have a naturally aspirated Subaru wagon um, uh, a few years ago now. Um, so here I am thinking, oh, this isn't too bad. Um, and then a hill appeared <laughs> and I remembered why I was not a big fan of this engine in this particular oh, no. car because it struggles. And if it struggles with me on board, um, imagine with a family and all their stuff as well. Um so the Outback XT, as it's called, um, it's available in the mid-level sport and top-level touring trims. Um, it offers a more powerful engine. It's related to the engine that's used in the WRX. So the standard Outback engine has 138 kilowatts of power and 245 newton meters of torque. Uh, the XT has a turbo 2.4 liter boxer engine with 183 kilowatts and 350 newton meters of torque. Uh, so that's actually the same amount of torque as the old diesel and it's the same amount of torque as the old six cylinder um, the claimed fuel economy is nine liters per 100 kilometers so it's a, a decent bit thirstier than the 7.3 liter figure of the base engine uh, but it is more fuel efficient than the old 3.6 liter uh, so here we are with a powertrain that is a little bit more efficient than the previous up level powertrain uh, and basically has the same amount of power and torque and it's just it makes a huge difference in this car, especially when you drive them back to back. It's just so much punchier off the line. You don't have to work the car as much. And so therefore it doesn't get as raucous because sometimes when you're on a steeper grade, for example, with a naturally aspirated model, you, you've got foot to the floor and it's making a racket. Um, now Subaru CVTs are, I'm not usually a fan of CVTs, um, but Subaru CVTs are, are probably among the better ones out in the market because they do trans simulate ratios in the way that an, a normal automatic transmission has. Um, so they don't have that weird kind of slurring rubber band, you know, awful yeah. <laughs> sound. But um, when you really do start to push the, the Atmo out back, you do start to get that, that CVT drone um, with a turbocharged engine because you've got that torque is available lower um, and it's just, so much more flexible, you're not working it as hard and therefore delivery is just so much smoother. And the Outback was always a car that was just 
an ideal kind of highway cruiser for a family. Um, we took this on some just atrocious roads in, in regional New South Wales and the ride quality was just exceptional. Um, so to actually have a little bit of power there just makes this so much more of a, a, a an ideal choice for you know families that might want to do road trips and you know uh, hit the highways. Is it worth the extra five k for the turbo though, Will? <sighs> yeah, I know it's it's that's a that's a that's a good question because five grand is a big premium mm. uh, because it doesn't add anything else other than the new powertrain. And, you know, we've seen a lot of brands will charge, you know, three to four grand more to get a more powerful powertrain. And also it comes with all-wheel drive, um, but all Outbacks are all-wheel drive. So it's not like you're getting – there's nothing else kind of bundled in there. Um, also, I should note as well, the XT – this will be fun for like uh, car spotters um, – you can only tell the XT apart from the Atmo models by the badge. The um, There's a second exhaust outlet, and this one I didn't even notice. I don't think anybody uh, nobody commented on the day. The fog lights have six LED elements. <laughs> like, honestly, who's going to notice that? Um but I think you know Subaru has such a kind of a rich performance heritage, and I think if you if you kind of go into the Outback XT thinking it's going to be a return to some of like the, the high powered liberties and whatnot of the past, that's not the case. This this is just simply the Outback with more power. They have retuned the dampers um, a little bit. There's more towing capacity, so brake towing capacity goes from two thousand to twenty four hundred um, kilograms. Uh, but ultimately, when you drive them back to back, in terms of handling, in terms of ride, there's there's not really much of a difference there. So it's it's not a performance car. It's just the engine that the car should have always had. Uh, so, Will, you know, you've commented on all the, the drivability benefits and performance benefits of this new engine. How does that translate, though, into running costs? What's the fuel economy like and, and how much does it cost to service compared to the normal one? So, fuel economy, as I mentioned before, um, the claim is a little bit higher. We, It's really hard to – I usually do my own, you know, fuel economy loop, so I, I can't really give you a, a scientific figure um, for how much of a difference in fuel economy there was. We observed across similar routes, um, obviously, higher fuel economy in the turbo. So, from memory, it was uh, – we were averaging about 8.8 litres with the Atmo model and 10.5 with the turbo. That was a lot of highway driving, but it was also a lot of hills and whatnot. So uh, uh, I imagine when we get one through the garage, we'll have a more kind of representative fuel economy figure that we can that we can give there. In terms of um, servicing costs, I was actually a little bit surprised about this. I'm almost waiting to get an email saying there was a typo. <laughs> oh, no. Um, no, but uh, according to Subaru's release, um, it's actually cheaper to service the XT than it is the Atmo model. How? Um, <laughs> yeah, um, not not massively more. Um, so the Atmo model, uh, first five services, um, together works out to be about 2,674 and for the XT it's 2,579 um, and that is slightly cheaper overall as well to service than the Volkswagen Passat Alltrack um, 
we're talking in the I was talking in the review about what this goes up against uh, because technically I mean if you if you consider VFAX this is considered a large SUV but that just kind of bundles it in with stuff like you know unibody three row crossovers like a Hyundai Santa Fe or Toyota Kluger on one side and, and body on frame stuff like an Isuzu MUX you know Ute based stuff like that uh, so it's a big kind of catch all category in terms of direct rivals I would say it probably only has one direct rival and that's the Volkswagen Passat all track in that it looks like a wagon. It's a little bit higher off the ground. There's some pretense of off-road ability there. Although I'd argue the outback definitely moves the, moves it forward over, over the Passat there. Um, You've also got other kind of station wagons. I mean, a Subaru, I think, is probably loath to call this a station wagon, but if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck and whatnot, um, (laughs) It, uh, you've got a few station wagons kind of remaining in this kind of rough end of the market. So you've got the kind of midsize Mazda 6 and you've got the larger Skoda Superb, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the Outback just seems to have just carved out a niche for its own because uh, we know a lot of buyers – and I know this this must be really hard for for enthusiasts like like us to hear, but a lot of people really don't like station wagons. I don't know if they associate it with like what they got like driven around in as a kid or something, but the number of people I've said, oh, you should get this. Oh, look at this lovely wagon. Oh, a wagon. Oh, it looks like a hearse. Um, so there are a lot of people out there that don't like wagons. And yet the Outback is one of the best-selling cars in, in, in its segment. Um, it does look like a wagon to me. It's a little bit higher and it does have um, more off-road ability than, uh, than I would argue something like a Passat Alltrack. Um, we actually had a little bit of an off-road course uh, for this. And, and, and I know the Subaru Outback has got like a very, you know, rugged, rural sounding name, but it's not, if I was thinking about taking a vehicle off-road, it's, it's probably not something that I would have considered necessarily i know that subaru's products like the xv and the forester and that have more ground clearance than a lot of their rivals and a lot of their rivals don't even have standard all-wheel drive so subaru has always trying to tried to pitch themselves a, a little bit more capable than a lot of rival brands um but uh, we took this on a relatively light off-roading course we got to play around with the different x modes um so there's, there's one for like dirt and, and, and one from mud and, and they adjust the amount of like torque that's sent to each wheel and this this it, it was a good practical demonstration of of where you could take this out back like I wouldn't be scaling Kilimanjaro in it um, but it it has a good amount of, of off-road ability there so if you are the type of family that might drive out to like a campsite or or, or whatnot um, you don't have to worry that the uh, that the outback is going to get you know um bottom out on, on, on the on the slightest kind of uh, change in terrain. Um, and then back on road, it's it's just a really smooth, uh, comfortable car to drive. So it's it's a really, it's it's kind of, I don't, I really don't like to use cliches like this, but it kind of does feel like a bit of a Swiss army knife of a car. Mm-hmm. Nice. Well, in, in that case then, if you're in the market for something like this, would you actually buy one, Will? I would be much more inclined now that it has the turbo, because um, as I said, it, it's not it's not necessarily a rocket ship. It's not some performance wagon, um, but it is genuinely a really likable car and a really good all rounder. So if you don't need a third row of seating, um, but you do have a family to to drive around, I, it it does feel like a a good um, a good choice. Okay, well, you've given it a car expert rating of 8.4. You can go and check that review out now. That's it in for this week's podcast. What cars have we got coming up in the garage next week, J-Wo? 
Uh, we have quite a few actually. So in Melbourne, we've got a barn door equipped Toyota Hiace, um, a GWM Havel H6 Ultra Hybrid, a BMW 330i sedan, Lexus RX 500h F Sport Performance, a Mazda 3. Uh, G20 Evolve hatch and a Mazda 2 G15 Pure hatch. Um, in Sydney, we have Matt Campbell in a slurry of different cars. He's got himself quite a few. So he's currently in a Cooper Formentor. He's also going to be driving a Defender or two Defenders, a Model Y, and then moving into a Corolla Cross. So he must have a very full garage up in Sydney. I reckon so. And our very own Jack Quick is off jet setting. Yes, yeah, so Jack's going on his first international launch. He's heading over to um, India with Mahindra, I assume, to see uh, a, a portfolio of products, not just one. I believe they're meant to be launching that new SUV here um, soon or they're, they're, they're looking into it. So I imagine this is a, a kickstart or a, a preview of what's to come from the Indian brand in the coming months. So it's really cool. I remember my first trip uh, was, uh, I think, with Seiko Moto, which is the parent brand for MG and LDV, and it's really interesting to to go to some of these countries with these new brands because, you know, while a brand like Mahindra or some of these Chinese brands are fairly new to our market and not necessarily massive volume players, in their domestic regions, they are very, very popular and very, very big. And when you think about how many people live in countries like India and China, you can see where the volume comes from. So I'm sure for him that'll be a really great experience. It's good to see that um, he's getting the opportunity to go overseas with some of these brands. Absolutely. We look forward to getting him on the podcast to talk about his experience there, no doubt. That's it for this week. Thank you, William Stopford and James Wong. Thanks, Mandy. Thanks, Mandy.